is uh, October 24th. It's 2010. As usual, I have another crazy title for a message. It's called Flowers or Five Books. Flowers or Five Books. As we went through worship this morning, many things came to me, but since I'm a, a preacher, I get a chance to tell you all of it when I stand up to preach. I don't have to prophesy during worship service. It was very exciting to me to look around the room, though, and see that the Lord was giving people words, and it was often the same thing that was on my heart. I want to tell you that Micah 3.8, don't turn there, I'm going to quote it in part, says, But as for me, the Lord has filled me with His Spirit and power to declare justice and righteousness. This is the position of a believer. A believer is filled with the Spirit of God for a reason. The Lord has put you on the earth as a catalyst for change. He has saved you so that you can work for Him. Micah 6, 8 says, And what does God require of you, O man? To act justly, to love mercy. These things are what our King wants. It is not difficult. It's not hard to love Him. It's not hard to walk humbly. It's not hard. It's His yoke. It simply means imitating Him. And from time to time, you are going to stumble. There is no question. Micah 7, 8 says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. For though I have fallen, yet will I rise again. And though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I want to tell you that a fall for us is a momentary thing. We count ourselves dead to the sinful nature. Maybe your moment lasted a moment. Or maybe your moment stretched into a year or a decade. But this moment, the Lord can be light for you. And I encourage you to grab that good word. Do not sit in shame. Don't look at your life as something less than righteous. Instead, make the adjustments to stand in Jesus' righteousness right now. He has good plans for you. I want to tell you, one of our favorite scriptures in this church is James 2.18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. The practical expression of our faith is expressed in loving deeds. Your faith-grounded obedience to Jesus will show up in the way that you treat your neighbors, the way that you talk to the people that are around you, the way that you pray Pray for and care for the lost. It is not enough to ascend to a creed, saints. It is not enough to be a member in good standing of a church. Your faith that is an internal thing must show up on the outside of your life. Or you are not a sheep. I believe you're here today because God has drawn you as one of His sheep. I believe that Ezekiel 34 teaches us that our job is to feed sheep. Our job is to see sheep healed, to bind up their injuries, and to go after the stragglers in the laws. If we don't do these things as a body of Christ, then His judgment will fall upon us. And His judgment may be so much wealth, so much uh, affluence, that you fall asleep and don't know what's important in life. His judgment can come in many ways. It's the poor that are rich in faith. I encourage you to get absolutely desperate for Him. I encourage you to run to your neighbor's houses and not just to foreign countries. I encourage you to cross streets rather than oceans and share the gospel with the people that have been saturated with a lie. People that have believed that by saying something it makes it true. To declare Jesus as Lord does not save a person any more than it saves five out of five demons. Mm -hmm. For Jesus to be Lord, that will save you. D.O. Moody said something. A lady criticized him. This has got to be my new favorite D.O. Moody quote. She criticized his methods of evangelism in attempting to win people for the Lord. She didn't like the way that he did it. So when she was critical of him, Moody was quick to agree with him. He said, I agree with you. I don't like the way that I do it either. Tell me, how do you do it? She said, I don't. Moody said, 
then I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> Church, we can be criticized for a great many things. Maybe I don't know how to dress right. Maybe you're not supposed to worship God in folding chairs. Maybe something about us is undesirable to the world at large. But I think God prefers our way of doing it to the world's way of not doing it. And I want to encourage you to make your mistakes moving forward. Make your mistakes trying to accomplish something for the Lord. Do not make your mistakes sitting on your hands, sitting on your salvation on a dead pew. Don't do it. Instead, live out loud for the Lord. Make no apologies for your unashamed passion for Him. Amen. Burn brightly. If you shine brightly for the Lord, if you seriously love someone, you may not even have to say anything to be a witness. You might be a city on a hilltop. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Yes. My wife and I have a very special gift that God has given us. It's something that He put in our hearts. It's not something that we could aspire to. It's not something that we could work up through our own strength. He put a very God-like divine love in our hearts for each other and for Him. In fact, it came as a love for Him that manifested as a love for each other. Most of the time when people visit us, they don't have to ask us if we're in love. They can see it. How obvious is your love for Jesus? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Three of you are there. Come on, church. Don't fall asleep on me on Sunday morning. Always found something interesting. When men talk about God, they talk about reverence. They talk about order. They talk about submission. All of those things are good and well. But when they talk about something they love, a passion, a hobby, smiles go on their faces. You can see grown men dance over shooting a Bambi with a certain number of points on its head. <laughs> Catch a certain kind of fish, they take pictures of it and tell everybody in the world, hang them on their wall. But when it comes to God, you know, I mean, religion's kind of a personal matter. Let's just make sure there's no outward sign of any kind. I want to encourage you to break out of the religious concrete. It's not that it's wrong to sit and honor God in silence. There are many times that's perfectly appropriate. But I think the majority of American people have learned to sit in silence both in church and outside of it. And God has called us to be a catalyst <coughs> that will change the world. You know, I'm not very happy that a homosexual minority is controlling an agenda in our nation. I mean, that, that just does not please me personally. But I want to tell you, at least they're gay full time. Christians are Christians a couple days a week. I want to tell you that at least they're a minority that understands they have the power to affect the majority. Because Christians have forgotten that. Why are Satan's disciples so much more bold than Jesus' disciples? Friends, the promises of God are sure. And it's when you're insecure and you're unconfident in something that you're not bold with it. If you are not sure that you can knock the man out, you might not want to step in the ring. If you're not sure that you can make your block, you're not excited when the ball snaps. I want to talk to you about the surety of God's Word for a moment. In 2 Corinthians 1, Look at verse 18. We're going to read down to the 22nd verse. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in Him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him, the Amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. 
This was done so that you would feel secure in His presence. He didn't just say, I put you in right standing, and then change His mind and take you out, and then put you back and take you out. He put you in right standing and then put His divine nature inside of you to guide you. It's like a seal of ownership saying, Oneida and Amanda belong to me. Mike belongs to me. Kizzy belongs to me. The seal of ownership means that when you belong to the king, there are some things that are simply not worth doing anymore. It'd be like a Saudi Arabian prince digging in a dumpster for food. He doesn't have to. His daddy is the king. His seal of ownership is upon you. And when you are confident of this, our brother Watchman Nee said, a man who has met authority does not see a man. Only the authority vested in the man. I want to tell you when you look in the mirror, stop seeing yourself. And start seeing what God says you are. Because then we have confidence that God's promises are there for us. That we can do it. You don't need to run to some faraway place to find out who Jesus is or who God is. He's made Himself available to you now. You don't have to ascend into the heavens or down into the depths. He's available now, right here. But somehow or another, like Naaman, searching for some great, clean river, we ignore what He's put right in front of our face and excuse ourselves of responsibility because we just haven't got to where it's happening yet. Saints, it's happening wherever you are because you're a son and daughter of the kingdom. Where you go, revival should break out. Where you go, healing should happen. Where you go, the blind should begin to see. And everywhere Jesus' word comes out of your mouth, dead people will leave graves and walk in life spiritually or physically, whatever the situation calls for. The sooner you begin to believe what God's word says about you, the sooner we see the greater things that Jesus promised. Our Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. Had a span of 40 some odd authors from every walks of life. There were kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars. Moses was a political leader trained in Egyptian universities. Peter a fisherman, Amos a herdsman, Joshua a military general, Luke a doctor, Daniel a prime minister, Solomon a king, Matthew a tax collector, and Paul a Jewish rabbi. Yet all of these men writing over all of that time period have the same scarlet thread running through all of their work. The king of the universe has set his affection upon you. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in history. The United Bible Society in 1997 said as of that date, 71,500,000 Bibles and books were being distributed around the world annually. 71 million. That's 8,162 copies an hour. Almost 200,000 copies every single day and night. And yet the Bible that you hold in your hand has never been proven to have a factual error anywhere in it. You have reason for security in the promises that you stand on. You have reason to believe that God's Word is true. And worse than that, better than that, to act like it. Our Bibles were written on materials that perish. Yet there's more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. There is in existence today 5,300 complete copies of the Greek New Testament from the, the time period it was written in. I mean, within 150 years. Altogether, there is in existence nearly 24,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament from the era, era it was written in. No other document in antiquity begins to approach such numbers, not even close. Second, second, is Homer's Iliad with 642 copies that survived. We have the most well-preserved word in history. We have the best-selling word in history. We have the most tested word in history. And all of those things are not the biggest testimony that you have about the book that sits in your laps, in your hands, or God forbid, in your car. 
what it is doing in your life is the biggest testimony that you have. In 1993, I was an angry young man shaking my fist in the air. I was literally angry because somebody had been convicting when they were preaching in a setting that I was going to, not willingly. I didn't have a choice. It was out of school that I attended. And as I shook my fist in the air, shouting at the ceiling, he spoke to me. And as soon as he spoke to me, and I recovered from that experience, the power of his voice knocked me down. Here I am 17 years later. I'm either crazy, and that never happened in the last 17 years of my life, I've been an extended delusion, or it happened just as I said. And as soon as I got up from the ground, I looked over at a purple Good News Bible that had been a textbook. I literally had foul language written inside of the cover. Notes that I passed back and forth to people. Sexually explicit comments. That's about where I was in my life at the time. And I knew exactly how these men had written it. Because I had just encountered the power of God. I could feel His presence in the room. And I began to weep as I read it. Because I knew they were men just like me. Somebody would say, heresy! Is he claiming to be a man like them? No, not, not close. But they did claim to be a man like me. I'm not claiming to be the Apostle Paul. I'm not claiming to be James or Elijah. But I'm telling you that what they said about themselves that was that they were humble, ordinary men. But people took note they had been with Jesus. Friends, when you're confident about the Word of God, when you understand the importance of this Bible, you cannot just go home, watch American Idol, kick back, put your hands behind your head, and catch another episode of The Simpsons and think that God's will was done that day in my life. I have an urgency, a passion, not because the Lord's going to appear this second. I believe in an imminent return of Jesus, but there are things that have to predate it. I don't see a temple built yet. There are a lot of things. I don't want to get into eschatology. What I want to get into is your life and your business right now. I think the Holy Ghost is not interested in people sitting and soaking. I think the Holy Ghost is not interested in people enduring the message. I don't think the Holy Ghost is interested in a religion that does not touch people's actual daily lives, that just entertains them twice a week. You know, in communist China, there is a state church called the Three Self Church. What a great name, huh? The Constitution, the Communist Constitution of China, actually allows for it, as long as it does not affect the daily routine of the people. This tells us right away it's a roadmap. It's the scheme of the devil. It tells us he is more than willing to put up with your creeds and affirmations. He is more than willing to put up with your church attendance as long as it does not affect your daily life. Cover your children's ears. I say hell no. Hell no. There is a king who purchased me. His blood is precious. The life He's given me is precious. And I don't have time to waste. Amen. Psalm 19 is something that I think we ought to read. I said 19, I bet it's 119. No, it's 19. <laughs> Psalm 19, verse 7. You New Testament Christians need to know that the New Testament was not written for about 1,200 years from this date. And listen to what it says about the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. If you've been taught that the law of the Lord is a restriction, it is strangling you, it is there only to condemn you, you were taught incorrectly. The Bible teaches us that the law itself will revive your soul. David, it revived his soul. Hosea, it revived his soul. When Obadiah prophesied, he was prophesying the law. The law of the Lord revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. 
if you feel uninstructed, if you're one of those men that did not get the education that some men have, get in your Bible. It will make a simple person wise. I've personally experienced this all of my life. <coughs> the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are much more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Our King has given us an immeasurable gift in the Word of God. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of it, Jesus is the absolute star of the Word of God. He's not only the plot, the major themes, the thesis of the book, He's actually a personification of the book. If you wanted to know how to carry out any of the law of the Lord, Old or New Testament, it's found in the life of Jesus. We find in Genesis that Jesus is the seed of the woman. He's the Passover lamb of Exodus, the atoning sacrifice of Leviticus, the smitten rock of Numbers. He's the faithful prophet of Deuteronomy. He's Joshua's captain of the Lord's host, Samson's jawbone, the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Christ is anticipated as the anointed one in 1 Samuel, the son of David in 2 Samuel. The maintainer of justice in 1 Kings, Solomon's Hall of Justice. The chariot of fire that transports men from the earth to the heavens in 2 Kings. He's the ark entering into a tabernacle in 1 Chronicles. He's the glory that filled the temple in 2 Chronicles. Ezra represents Christ as the restorer of the temple. Nehemiah shows him as the restorer of the nation. Esther portrays him as the preserver of the nation. Christ is seen as the living redeemer in the book of Job. The praise of Israel in the Psalms, the wisdom of God in the Proverbs, the great teacher in Ecclesiastes, the fairest of 10,000 in Psalms of Solomon. He's Isaiah's suffering servant. He's Jeremiah's giver of the new covenant. He's the man of sorrows and lamentations, the breath that revived the dry bones in Ezekiel. He's Daniel's Messiah. He's depicted as the lover of the unfaithful in Hosea, the hope of Israel in Joel, the repairer of broken places in Amos, the deliverer of God in Obadiah, the resurrected one in Jonah, the ruler in Israel in Micah, the avenger in Nahum, the holy God in Habakkuk, the king of Israel in Zephaniah, the desired of the nations in Haggai, the righteous branch in Zechariah. And Micah said the sun would rise with healing in its wings in the book of Malachi. Our king is the star of all 39 books of the Older Testament. And it doesn't stop there. How many of you have heard that the Older Testament is boring? What a lie from the devil! What a lie! Dry bones come to life in it. Other times dead dry bones cause a man to come to life. Can you imagine burying somebody, pitching a body in a hole, it touches Elijah's bones and comes out of the hole? <laughs> and yet by coming into contact with the death of Jesus, it has given you life. What the Older Testament says implicitly, the Newer Testament says explicitly. What lies concealed in the Older Testament is revealed in the Newer Testament. This is one contiguous revelation. Thirty-nine books lay a foundation, the first floor of a house, so that the second floor can be glorious. Say, <coughs> so, well, we're New Testament Christians. What Bible did the New Testament Christians read? For 150 years they considered themselves a sect of Judaism. That's something that's not even recognized today. In all of our cathedrals, we now call our buildings churches. The New Testament says over 200 times the people are the church. Amen. Amen. It's easier to build a building though, isn't it? 
Put some stained glass up. It'll look heavenly. Put a man in a holy suit on a holy day. You can pay him a holy fee and feel as if God is pleased with you. This ignores the message of the book. It is dead religion, and it will save no one. In fact, it enslaves. Jesus in the Newer Testament is even yet more vibrant. He's the King of the Jews in Matthew, the servant of the Lord in Mark, the Son of Man in Luke, and the Son of God in John. Christ is the ascended Lord of Acts. He's the believer's righteousness in Romans, the sanctification of a believer in Corinthians, and a believer's sufficiency in 2 Corinthians. He's the liberty of God in Galatians. He's the head of the exalted church in Ephesians. The Christian's joy in Philippians. The fullness of the deity in Colossians. Christ is a believer's comfort in 1 Thessalonians and the same believer's glory in 2 Thessalonians. He is seen as the Christian's preserver of life in 1 Timothy and his rewarder in 2 Timothy. It's the blessed hope of Titus, the substitute in Philemon. He is our high priest in Hebrews, the giver of wisdom in James. The rock in 1 Peter. 2 Peter is our precious promise. John simply says in 1 John, Christ is the life. In 2 John, he's the truth. And in 3 John, he's the way. Jude portrays our Jesus as an advocate. The book of Revelation rightly calls him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus that spoke to me and changed my whole life? He wrecked it. He tore my dreams all apart and gave me new ones, better ones. He took my way of doing things and broke it into little pieces, ground it like meal and made me eat it so that I would know it was bitter. And then he gave me that which was better. My life, like your life, should be a story from bitter to better. If you're going from better to bitter, you're on the right road, but you're headed the wrong direction. Turn around. Repent. I've been in church all my life, but my life just pulls a vacuum, you know? No, I don't know. That's not the Jesus that I met. That is not the Jesus that saved me. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him as the Bible presents Him, or only as the American televangelist, who is a fisher of funds, presents Him? This book does not lie about Him, but how much time have you taken to get to know Him? Do you only know Jesus that John presents? Or do you know Jesus that Genesis through Malachi presents? Do you know the Jesus that the book of Revelation presents? People that say, oh, my God is love, they know a part of Jesus. About like knowing a channel on a TV set. But they do not know Jesus. Sixty-six books were given. They were given as a continuous revelation so that you would understand all that there is to know about the person of Jesus who magnifies the character of God. How seriously have you taken it? I'm all for a gospel track. The other pastor in this church, Matthew Pirro, got saved by reading the gospel track. But praise God, that's not all he had. There is more to Jesus than four spiritual laws. There is more to Jesus than a sinner's prayer. There is more to Jesus than the church has made them. Just give us the minimum, you know? Let us sit on our salvation. As long as your butts are in the seats and the tithes are in the plates, most pastors don't care. It allows them to play golf six days a week. I want something more. Because Jesus demands something more. Our lives are more than just adherence. Our lives are more than religious duty. Our lives are to glorify Him. He gave Elizabeth things He didn't give Eric. He gave David things that He didn't give Elizabeth. He gave CJ things that Richard doesn't have. He gave Richard things that Fred doesn't have and Fred things that Darnell doesn't have. This is how the kingdom works and it was made for His glory. When you built an altar in the Bible, the book of Exodus says you're not allowed to use a, a, a tool on the stones. He didn't want us all alike. He wanted the uniqueness of His creation to shine forth His glory. 
And what we do is we cookie cut Christians. This is what a Christian does. This is what a Christian doesn't do. This is what a Christian looks like. This is how a Christian dresses. This is what a Christian listens to. This is a Christian's bumper sticker. Blah, blah, blah. And put a big fat stamp on the forehead that says USDA certified Christian. When a man has met Yeshua HaMashiach, when he has encountered the divine authority of God and that authority flows through him, you don't have to tell him how to dress. You don't have to tell him what to listen to. You don't have to tell him those things because he met Jesus. Yes. The church of God has gone wrong in so many areas. At least what is called the church of God. And I've participated in all of it. I don't stand here innocent. I stand here having done it all wrong. But my life's not over. When we stand at altars and we teach salvation and we proclaim salvation, this is great and the Bible teaches it. When we declare people saved, I have not yet found that one in the Bible. That's God's job. His spirit bears witness with their spirit. But part of our cookie cutter assembly line is to say, okay, say after me, repeat the incantation. It's almost like our Roman Catholic friends eating their crackers. Okay, good, you said it, you're saved. No man knows when he's saved. It's taken me nearly 20 years to learn it, but I found out that people that got saved outside of the church machine didn't have real experiences with the Lord when inside the church machine, it's really quite questionable. They learn to say all of the right things, but it's not found anywhere in their actions. Saints, do you know Jesus? What is your relationship with Him like? What a great question. Do you interact with Him? Could you even call it a relationship? Do you date Jesus or are you married to Him? Do you see Jesus like I see a few of my relatives? From a distance, endure it, and then walk away. Don't act like you don't have relatives like that. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> have to pray for four hours before you go, spend 30 minutes there, and spend four days getting rid of the junk that got on you while you were there. How do you know Jesus? Are you passionate about Him? Come on, I've seen some of you. You're passionate about Halo. You're passionate about a new guitar hero. You're passionate about a car that you got. Passionate about some new kind of wine you found. Passionate! Are you passionate about Jesus? You throw your arms up at a football game and dance a little dance when your team scores, but in praise and worship, cross your arms, sit down and yawn, file your nails, stare at your feet. funny, every once in a while a pastor will ask, ask a question he already knows the answer to. I'm going to need a bigger pulpit. <laughs> you have trouble containing yourself when you talk about him. You find somebody that has recently met Jesus and they just about can't get their words to come out right. They're so excited about it. Would you be described that way? Do people that meet you in the 20th year of your faith think that you're in the first year of your faith because of your zeal. Because it's supposed to increase, not wane. Is He part of your life? Or is He your life? I learned in India that you can preach salvation to a man and they get very excited and then they set a statue of Jesus right next to their statue of every other God they've ever served. How reprehensible Come back to America, and the only difference is we don't have statues. Mm -hmm. At least they're obvious about it. Man, what are you talking about? I go to church. Yeah, I know. You do. You go to church, but you never make your way into church. You're not church. This is fairly irreverent, and I'm sorry, but I once noticed in a bathroom that the toilet seat was named church. Sitting there did not save anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting in McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. <laughs> Sitting in Reliance Stadium does not make you Texan. Saints, who is Jesus to you? Do you know him? Do you know him as I've described him today? So, Eric, I'm just not good with quoting scripture. You won't have to be good with quoting scripture. He will quote it through you. The Bible never said that your intellect would save you. It never said it depended upon your strength. 
your intellectual prowess, your academic achievements. This is what pastors have said because of all of their great learning. They would like to be revered. The Bible reveres men whose weakness allows God's strength to be shown. That's what the Bible reveres. So tell me who in here does not qualify for that? Who in here is not weak? Do you know him? I want to tell you a story about two women. A pastor in Louisiana told me this yesterday. You can't hold me to it because pastors are kind of like fishermen. Every once in a while their stories get a little bit amazing. But I believe this to be an actual story. That was the way in which it was presented to me from a very close friend. He said that there were two women who met at a park for kind of a play date. And while they were at the park, one woman shows the other, Oh, look, I have flowers that my husband brought me today. He loves me so much. This made one woman kind of envious. Don't act like you can't relate to that. I know that you can. So next month, they show up, and the same woman who had flowers the previous month now has a new piece of jewelry. Look, look how much my husband loves me. Shows the jewelry. At this point, the first woman who's received nothing is beginning to question her husband's love for her. Being think, I don't get flowers. I don't get jewelry. Does my husband love She fights it off, but she's struggling with it. Month number three, woman shows up at the park, this time with a new Mercedes Benz. Look how my husband loves me. You know what the first woman did? She decided to stop going to that park. <laughs> but as time would have it, she does meander back by the park one day, a year or so later. She sits down on the same park bench, and guess who comes up? The woman who's so blessed. The woman with flowers, the woman with a ring, the woman with a Mercedes Benz, but the woman has no husband. He left her. I said, but what? What do you mean? How could he leave you? Well, I feel kind of stupid. But the way this seems to have worked is, he began flirting with his secretary and he felt guilty. So he brought me flowers that month. He progressed with his secretary into something that was more physical. So he brought me jewelry that month. Trying to assuage his conscience. And when he had decided to leave me, he thought he would leave me with a car woman had to go home and talk to her husband and say, I want to confess to you. I thought that I was inferior, that this other woman was more loved by her husband because of all these gifts. He said, sweetheart, I work every day so that you can be who God's called you to be. Raise our children. Build a family that will last forever. My life is about service to you. That's a moving story when it's about women and their husbands. You do the things you do for Jesus. Are you trying to assuage guilt for flirtations with the world? You show up and throw some change in the offering plate like a man would give a woman a ring when he feels guilty? Is your church attendance really nothing more than say, I'm sleeping with the world six days a week, but on this day, I'll think about you? Like a Mercedes Benz, you would give to someone. Or is your relationship with Jesus like a devoted husband? whose life has come to a place where all he wants to do is serve his wife. <clears throat> I know the allegory is backwards. Jesus is the groom. We're the bride. But he's already demonstrated his faithfulness, hasn't he? Where are you? Turn with me to Mark 8. Said, if anyone would come after me, 
He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. If you want to save your life in Christ, you must lose your life in this world. Say, Eric, you've been preaching against Islam for weeks. Are you telling us to go become Shahada martyrs? Not at all. It'd be an easy thing to give your life in a single moment. I'm talking about giving every moment of your life, every day of your life, and sacrifice the way that mamas do for their children. The way that a good husband would do for his wife. The way Jesus has done for you. Do not date Jesus. Do not show up with flowers. Go to sleep next to Him. Wake up next to Him. Think about Him all day. Be as in love with Him as any two people are on their honeymoon. This is the relationship we're being called to. It sounds a lot different than intellectual assent to church creed. <coughs> I have found this to be true in more places than I can count. Yes, Eric, we are believers. Good. Eric, we believe this, 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 this. Good. But when I speak about my love for Jesus outside the walls of their building that they call the church, they are embarrassed in public. Standing in a line in McDonald's talking about my passion for Jesus, they're looking around to see who can see and hear. What spouse would put up with that kind of behavior from their spouse? Honey, stay home today. I'd rather my friends not see you. <laughs> God will not be mocked. Do you know Him? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus will not accept flowers for your soul, not rings and not Mercedes Benz. He accepts one thing in exchange for your soul. Letting your will, your life in this world die, that you might take up His desire and His will, that His heart might be formed in you. If, in, if this, I'm sorry, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. You ever thought about standing in that very same line with me in Walmart when you're talking about Jesus and people are starting to scoot away from you? I mean, they got Bibles on the back dash of their car. They might even have some witness wear, you know. But suddenly they're scooting away from you. Say, oh, it's okay, brother. Jesus would be ashamed of you in the same way when he comes. Oh, no, we could never say that. We could not know what's in the man's heart. You can see what's in his heart by his deeds, my friend. But that's not loving. Do you know my Jesus? He's the most gentle and compassionate and the most harsh and convicting human being that has ever walked the planet. He's full of dichotomies because in him is the complexity of all that God is, the fullness of the deity. He's not limited. When you ask Jesus a question, he didn't answer with something that is out of the box. Jesus says, There is a box. I can speak and create universes. Turn with me to Romans now. If you have a bulletin, we're going to get to something that's in the bulletin in a minute. There are five Hebrew words stamped in the pastor's corner of your bulletin. Please do not leave your bulletins littered in, in this building. Not only does it hurt our feelings, it shows what a colossal waste of time we spent in producing them. So have the courtesy to take this bulletin and take it with you when you go. The same way that you are supposed to take the Word with you when you go. Your service to God is not done by sitting in these seats. Your service to God is done by being fed here to go feed others there. That is your service to God. Your service to God is not complete when you get out your calculator and calculate a tithe to the penny. Your service to God is complete when you have been completely obedient to whatever he has said to do. Say, so, well, he's not speaking. Well, I think the problem is with your ears, not with his voice. Let's assume that if there's a problem, it's with you and not with him. And let's do what it takes to hear the Spirit of God. Well, you know, I've never heard him. 
Well, you've got 66 books that are speaking volumes right in front of you. The same people who say they've never heard from God have never read what God's already said. Eric, I just don't like the way you do it. It's okay. I like this way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> Genesis is about the origin of all things and the election of God's people. Who are God's people, church? Israel. Genesis is about the origin of all things and the election of God's people. Exodus is about the redemption of God's nation. Leviticus is about the sanctification of God's nation. Numbers is about the direction of God's nation. Deuteronomy is about the instruction of God's nation. The first five books of the Bible are all about Israel give you another secret. So are the next 51 books. So if you're not in Israel, you happen to be right here seated in a chair in Sugarland, Texas, what does this have to do with you? Well, in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, we will find an answer. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, Israel. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. This scripture does not say, and theirs was. It says theirs is. All of those things belong to Israel. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. Romans 11 and Ephesians 3.6. You can write those down. I'm going to read it to you. Romans 11 and Ephesians 3.6. Make it clear that through Jesus we were included in God's plan. Here's Ephesians 3.6. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. The mystery that was revealed in the gospel is that everything that God destined for Israel, you could come and be a part of. You do not replace Israel. You don't erase Israel. You do not become a Jew. You simply get to participate alongside them. God is not interested in making cookie cutters. He's not interested in using stones that have been worked with tools. He is taking the Gentile nations, each unique in their own place, and forming them together to make an altar that happened to have been laid its foundation in Israel, and its capstone will be in Israel. But it is made up of the nations, even as the tent of meeting was made of all the colored skins that they could find. Even a sea cow. Can you imagine God tells you to go find a sea cow and you're in Israel? All right, Lord. If we were Texans, we'd just drag one of our bovine out there and throw it in the lake. <laughs> they actually went and had to go find manatee. Because God wanted it to be diverse. Mystery is that the gospel, the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing. Well, Genesis was about the election and Exodus was about redemption and Leviticus was about sanctification and Numbers was about the direction and Deuteronomy was about instruction. Why don't we get that from the titles? By the way, when you hear the word Genesis, is that Hebrew? No. How about Exodus? No. Leviticus? No. Numbers, numbers, surely that must be a Hebrew word, huh? No. Deuteronomy? No. None of those are Hebrew titles. You mean that if Jesus went to pick up a scroll, and when he picked up that scroll, he wanted to turn to Genesis, he wouldn't say Genesis? No, in fact, they wouldn't even call him Jesus. His name was Yeshua. In the southern part of Israel, they would have said Yeshu. In the northern part of Israel, they would have said Yeshu. And if he was in India and they were trying to say it, they'd say Yesu. If he was in Greece, they'd say Jesus. All the peoples of the world have pronounced this word differently. He seems to not mind. Having said that, if you cannot even call his name right, and we have renamed the books of his Bible that tell his story, do you think it's possible we could be missing something? 
I'm not talking to you about some secret esoteric doctrine. You can relax. Although we've all shaved our heads, we're not in a cult. We simply have solidarity with a sister who is struggling to defeat cancer that is already defeated. Perhaps if we looked at these books through more Hebraic eyes, we might see God's message to Israel that has become his message to you as well because through the mystery of the gospel you have become a co-heir with Israel. In your bulletin, do you see five Hebrew words? Yes. The first word is not a curse word. It doesn't have to do with bears. Genesis in Hebrew is called Bereshit. Aren't you glad for the last H? Bereshit. Bereshit means in the beginning. This is because in Genesis, Bereshit, in Hebrew, God wanted to remind us that He is the beginning of all things. That He created all men to be in fellowship with Him. The book, generally speaking, is about the election of Israel. But you know what else it is about? Your election. Because Ephesians and Thessalonians both teach that before time began, He predestined you to be a part of Him. If you want to be more technically precise, they teach that he predestined Israel and then included you in their destiny. That's what he teaches. But I don't want to split hairs here. <laughs> Saints. In Hebrew, Bereshith, in the beginning, is to remind you something. In the very beginning of your walk with him, your awareness of him, he chose you. He left Oh, no, no, he really had his eye on some other people in some other place. And yet you're here. He included you in whatever he was doing for them. That's worth something. That's worth thinking about in the beginning. Exodus. If you turn to Exodus in the first chapter, in the first verse, you're going to see something. The line is going to start with, these are the names. In Hebrew, this is Shemoth or Shemoth. Shem, meaning name. When it's plural, Shemoth. Or Shemot. Why would the Hebrews call the book of Exodus, which has to do with redemption, Shemoth, the names? Oh, well, Eric, they just took the first few words. I mean, that's just how they did it. Yeah, you're right. Jews never been that smart. Yeah, if you don't recognize sarcasm, that was it. <coughs> when you think of Exodus, you may not think of redemption. The first few chapters of Exodus detail slavery. But God wanted His people to know, I know the name of every single person that has come under the yoke of the Egyptians. I knew your name when you became a slave. I wrote it down because by the power of my Shem, my name, I'm going to set you free. When He created all mankind in Bereshit, Genesis. He had in mind that they would be in fellowship with him. But by the time Exodus comes around, Shemoth, he had to write down their names because the people had fallen into slavery. And it would be by his name that their redemption would come. <coughs> Hebrews 9 and Colossians 1 teach us that our redemption is in him. Colossians said he rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son, that he loves that we might have redemption in him. Hebrews says that it wasn't by the blood of bulls and goats that he brought you redemption. He went into a heavenly tabernacle and with his own blood purchased your redemption. This is why I told you he is the Passover lamb in Exodus. He is your redeemer. But the book is not called Exodus, it's called Shimon. And it's called Shimon because he wrote down your name the day the enemy took you captive and said, I will surely bring them you turn to the first chapter of Leviticus, the first few words, it'll say, and the Lord called. In Hebrew, that's Wayhebra. You have it written in your bulletin, so I'm not spelling it. Wayhebra. Why would they name the book that? Again, it's not because they're inventive or not inventive. It is a reminder 
that our God is calling us out of the slavery of Egypt that He redeemed us from to a life of sanctification. Leviticus is about the sanctification of the Jewish nation, but to you, a graft in, it speaks to Him calling to you, saying things must be done differently. He's reminding us that the Lord wants you to be sanctified. Another way to say that in English is, He called you so that He could set you apart for His use. He didn't want you to sit on your salvation. And if you de detect a, a certain note of disgust, it's there. You're not just detecting it, I'm proclaiming it. <laughs> he called you, even as He called Israel, to be set apart for Him. If you'd like to read more about that, you should read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Called. God called Paul. What did he do? He went to prayer. And what does Paul say he's called to do? Paul says in Romans 1.5 that he is called to call the Gentiles to trust grounded obedience or obedience that comes from faith. Our God, just like the book of Leviticus, Wehebra, is calling to us, saying, you must be sanctified. You must be set apart. I have a use for you. If you turn to the book of Numbers, in the book of Numbers, in the first sentence, you will find that they're in a wilderness. In Hebrew, that is, Bemidbo. In a wilderness. Well, if the book of Numbers is about the direction of God's nation, why would He name it Bemidbar? He wanted you to remember that you were in a wilderness, in a desert, when He found you. And left to your own direction, you will always gravitate back to the same nasty, dry place. It's as important for a believer to know they're redeemed as know what they were redeemed from. It's as important for a believer to know the life of God to also know the death that is outside of that life. If the book of Numbers is about the direction of the nation of Israel, then for the life of the believer, it is astounding astounding reminder of our natural inclination and yet God is working through it all to take us somewhere good. He's working to take us to the promised land. The book of Numbers starts in a wilderness but it does not end there. Our God always takes from dark to light. He takes you out of evening and into morning. He is the rising sun. <coughs> takes you from bitter to better. The book of Deuteronomy is the last book that we'll cover in this section. Deuteronomy is not referred to in Deuteronomy in Hebrew. It's Devarim. That V can be a B in Hebrew, just like most languages. It means words. The book of Deuteronomy is about the instruction of God's nation, Israel. But now that you, through the mystery of God, are a co-heir with Israel, for you it is reminding you that He has given you His words of instruction for life. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy it says that He gives them the law so that it will go well with them and they will live long in the land. Ten times in the book of Deuteronomy He says, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. He says in the book of Deuteronomy, All oh, that their hearts were inclined to follow Me. Our God is longing for us to follow His instruction. If you believe the lie that the Older Testament was boring, it's no more boring than Jesus. And if you find it boring, it's because you find Jesus boring. So how could Jesus be boring? You're right, you didn't know Him. You didn't know Him. If you really met Him, it would not be boring to you. The man that has met the power of God recognizes the power of God, and these pages are lame. So, well, the Older Testament is just not all that relevant in my life, you know? How relevant was it in the life of Jesus? When doing hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil himself, he quoted Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8, and Deuteronomy 10. Why didn't he quote the book of Revelation to it? Really? My heart's desire is that you would know from this message that our Lord does not want from you flower service. 
He wants the kind of things that the first five books teach. He wants you in communion with Him. He wants you to be redeemed and given His name. He wants you to set apart, be set apart for His use. He wants to provide you direction out of the wilderness and into a good life. He wants to teach you to be like Him. In John 5, 24-26, He teaches that people will hear His voice and come out of the grave. They will cross over from death to life. I'm telling you that message has been the same since the first five books of the Bible and it's found in the last book as well. Do you know Him? Stand to your feet. But as for me, I am filled with His Spirit and with power to declare righteousness, to maintain justice. What does He want of me? To act justly, love mercy, to walk humbly. What do I do when I fall? Don't gloat over me, my enemy. For though I have fallen, yet will I rise. And even if I sit in darkness, Christ will be light for me. How do you know these promises? Because they are yes and amen. And I have found them in every one of the 66 books. Do you know him, saints? At the end of the day, it's not enough that your mama knows him. Not enough that your daddy knows him. Your brother knows him. Your sister knows him. You can learn just by watching the family of Jesus. Those things will get you nowhere. Do you know him? We're going to pray. Jennifer and Matthew are going to sing a song, Be Magnified. At any time you want to leave, you can leave. We're not going to leave until the song's over. I'm not going to give you the traditional altar call. It says these next few seconds are the most important of your life. No, these next few seconds will be a waste if they're not followed by decades of service to the king. I'm not going to tell you a lie that says if you come down here and say some magic incantation or eat a special wafer, it's all good from here on out. I'm telling you, you must lose your life in His presence or you are not worthy of Him. That's what I'm telling you. Do you know Him? I want Him to be magnified in your life. I want Him to be magnified in my life. And this is not a hard thing. Vines and trees don't strain to produce fruit. They produce it because... They're vines and trees. The fruit of the Spirit flows from a Christian even as an apple tree grows on an, an apple grows on an apple tree. Maybe this is a time you can realize you did make God a little too small in your life. Maybe this is a time you could say, be magnified, Lord. Maybe there's dedication that needs to be made. Maybe there's the death of something that has to happen. Preacher, were you talking to me? Resoundingly. All 80 of you in here. Yes, I was talking to you. And when I go home, I will contemplate this word for me as well. We have him and he has all of us, or we have none of him and he has none of us. There is no middle ground. He's your Lord, or else he's a pocket genie. Or Santa Claus. There is no middle ground, saints. All or nothing. Let's worship Him and then we'll close.
Thanks. I'm proud to serve Jesus with you. So I want to give you a blessing, and then we close this service. The Lord sparked something in your heart that you need to talk to someone about. Find anybody that's gone to this church for any length of time, and I tell you, they're qualified. Sit down. Bear your heart with them. Weddings are not done in private. Engagements are public affairs. Sit down with someone. Speak out loud what's happening in your heart. And then make good on your vows. Until then, I tell you, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua, God's people say, Amen. Amen.